in the beginning, if you could give me a sort of a one-minute soundbite about who you are, what you guys have achieved, if you can talk about revenues, impact, you know, volume sold, whatever, that would be great. And the more detailed you can be just to kind of show the sort of scale and volume that you've done. Basically, I'll give you some quick background. We, you know, we are um, uh, the company. I mean, I've been at this company for 26 years. Um, mm-hmm. It was my second job out of college. Um, I was a I was the film critic for my school paper, and I was an English major. I had no idea I was going to go into marketing. Um, I certainly was a personable guy, but didn't know. I thought I'd be an editor. I'd be, you know, a writer or something. So I wanted to get a job in a publishing company, and the job that came available happened to be at this little company called Boardroom that published newsletters and books. And they happened to also have, you know, since they don't take advertising, um, they do have, you know, uh, they had in-house list management. Uh, most companies, if they rent their list, they usually have an outside list manager take care of that for them. But we had an in-house list management department, which is the first job that I had here. And it was a fascinating job to get as a first job because I think um, learning direct marketing from the list side of things is just a fantastic education. I mean, looking back, I didn't know it at the time, because I didn't know I didn't know a list broker from a stockbroker, but I at the time looking back, really learning marketing from the list side is basically learning marketing from you know who you're going to market to as opposed to being just an idea guy or just someone who sits in brainstorming meetings and figures out you know what's a good idea or what's a bad idea, but really as as opposed to figuring out where there's where the markets are, what the demand is in those markets and then finding products that people want as opposed to finding products that you're impressed with yourself or coming up with. So it was a very interesting early part of my career where, you know, uh, renting, being in the, list, in the list management business and, you know, dealing in that part of the business really got my feet wet in a way that, looking back, I think gives me a very, very unique perspective. And not to say that a lot of other people who've come out of the list business or other media and then go into a more general marketing background are not as skilled as I am, but I think that most people who stay in those areas, who are in those areas, stay in those areas because of, you know, they're very, it's very lucrative if you're in a sales and a commission structure. So you've got a good background. Can you tell us a little bit about how big boardroom was back then and how big it is now? Yeah. I mean, I got here in 81, uh, the day Reagan was shot, uh, was my first day at boardroom. Um, and boardroom at that time was probably about, 30 employees, 35 employees maybe, um, and we might have been doing yeah, maybe $5 million in revenue. Uh, we had um, maybe $8 million, I don't know. It wasn't, I, I don't really remember the exact number. Um, we had at that time, um, the first newsletter we published was uh, back in 1971, which was about 10 years old when I got here, was Boardroom Reports, which was a business newsletter um, geared to the you know the executive on how to run their business. Marty Edelston, who started the company, um, had spent ten years previous to starting Boardroom as the business manager of Commentary Magazine, and was always very frustrated as a reader of business books and business magazines that none of them really told you how to run your business. They all had feature stories about IBM and and you know what's happening at AT and T, but Fortune Forbes. Business Week and the Wall Street Journal didn't do what he wanted, which was how do you run your business. So he launched Boardroom Reports in 71. Then he did a, a series of different business books with various people that he had met over the years and some tax subjects and business subjects, none of them being that big. And then when I got to Boardroom in the early 80s, we had just started our second newsletter called Bottom Line Personal, which was Boardroom Reports but the, but the personal side of the executive. So then, uh, and, and at the same time, we had a big selling book, finally, and the book was called The Book of Business Knowledge, and the book was, and the reason why I'm giving you this background, because it really was the precursor to what the business became, because Book of Business Knowledge was basically Boardroom Report's greatest hits. So basically, the model of taking some of the best stuff from the newsletters, putting it into a big hardbound book, and selling it for $30 was a model that was fantastic because a lot of people didn't want to be committed to a subscription newsletter, and yet there are a lot of people who buy books. So taking the same material, you know, this you talk about, you know, the word repurposing editorial 
is in everybody's in everybody's uh, lexicon, you know, in the, in the internet world. But back in 1981, in 1980, 79, Marty had already figured. I used to say Marty invented hypertext before the internet, you know, and he understood that it wasn't re- repurposing was just a way of life. You have this great content, and some people want it in a subscription format, and some people want it in books. So, Book of Business Knowledge sold over 100,000 copies or more uh, through direct mail only, and so a model was sort of born in with that. And then when Bottom Line Personal became our second big newsletter, obviously the same model held true, and then a book that was developed shortly after was called The Book of Inside Information, and that was Bottom Line's Greatest Hits. And that book ended up selling over 3 million copies in direct mail. So, so your model means to, to publish content in the newsletter on a subscription basis, and then the breakthrough, and this happened in the 80s, was to take some of the content that was considered the best and then republish that as a book as and, and to get a second revenue stream that worked really well. That's correct. And, and I think that, I mean, and, and I'll, I'm going to give you some of the, his, some of the more recent history and, and the stuff that I brought to the table. Um, you'll see it was a nice extension from that because clearly you're going to run out of editorial at some point. You only have so much that you can put in the books. Um, so what, and we also had other books at the time too. We, we would, we hired an author, for instance, to do a, a fantastic book on estate planning. And even that book, which is kind of vertical, because we now we had developed a database, or this was the early days of database marketing, we weren't, we weren't even doing modeling back then, but at least we had now a file of a few hundred thousand names that we could, we could, we could pick, you know, pick out the raisins in the cake and say, you know what, these are executives, these are high, uh, income individuals, you know, if we could sell thirty or 40,000 copies of an estate planning book, we've got ourselves a business there too. So we did an estate planning book, we did a tax planning book, so we, did, we were able to spin off more vertical subjects uh, that were not going to sell as much as Book of Inside Information and Book of Business Knowledge, but they certainly were going to be able to mail to the same audience, and all of a sudden, you know, a book business was born out of both, I'll call it the horizontal nature of a book of inside information and greatest hits from the newsletters and then developing a more vertical book business that made perfect sense. Then we, you know, as the 80s... Go on. How did you distribute the books? Almost uh, exclusively through direct mail. We were totally committed to direct mail at the time as the source to be able to get to what we call critical mass. You know, there was no way that we'd be able to sell the quantity of books like like I just told you you know, through space advertising, there was no way we were going to do it through TV because we didn't have the funds to do that. Plus, there was no model out there that said that this was going to work for TV. Um, Direct Mail had some history of selling books, obviously, Book of the Month Club, and Macmillan was active back then. Um, We did it in a way that was very interesting because we created Direct Mail, and this is probably the other, you know, early secret to the success is that we created what I would call state-of-the-art direct mail. And by state-of-the-art is that we, we, we didn't just, you know, do formulaic, you know, uh, order card brochure letter, but we, we created a whole uh, technique. I mean, I call it fascinations, but uh, a lot of people call it other things. But what it was was the idea was that there were so many great tidbits in these books. I mean, our editorial was all about useful information. Uh, the newsletters were not feature magazines. They were newsletters. They were, you know, useful tidbits for your either your business life or your personal life. And therefore, creating direct mail copy that talked about those tidbits with exciting what we call fascinations and then refer to a page number where you would find the answer to that fascination was a technique that was not invented by us. I mean, that if you go... You were using bullets. Bullets. Well, yeah, okay, there's a good name for it. We call them fascinations, but, yes, you can call them bullets. Um, but you can go back to, you know, Ralph Ginsburg in the 60s used to use the technique of, you know, bullets with page numbers. Um, there were a variety of other writers who were out there doing it, and we just mastered it. We, You know, we had a couple of copywriters at the time who uh, Marty had known from previous lives who were just fantastic at pulling out the the nuggets out of a book and creating direct mail that just sung. It was 
I said direct mail that sings. It was so to answer your question, it was all direct mail basically, and so to, to be able to so sell those kinds of volumes in direct mail for one-shot books at the time, I don't want to say it was unprecedented, but the numbers were astounding. So let's maybe let's talk a little bit more about that. So you have subscribers on the newsletter, and you're out there um, acquiring lists, mailing to them, and 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 using using the lists in that way. You're then using that same acquired knowledge of those lists to then sell the books. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, list research, you know, is is a universal. I mean, you know, uh, anything we did to sell our newsletters in direct mail, we used a lot of the same techniques to sell books. Different buyers, I mean, you're reaching into the barrel and pulling out different types of people, but selling books through direct mail and selling the newsletters through direct mail were, you know, there was certainly a lot of overlap in the techniques that we used, yes. And what kind of size now is Boardroom Reports or Boardroom? Well, it's really Boardroom Incorporated. Boardroom Reports doesn't even exist anymore as a newsletter. Uh, we've become, you know, as I said, after Bottom Line Personal, um, the next big, well, we also had a tax newsletter at the time. I think actually, yeah, tax, new, tax hotline launched after Bottom Line Personal. And then, uh, after that, we launched a health newsletter called Health Confidential, which became Bottom Line Health many years later. And fast forward, health became our biggest category. Um, while Bottom Line Personal is still our biggest newsletter, overall, as a category, the, the health category is by far our biggest. And, you know, we've done upwards of over $100 million in revenues. Um, but, you know, some years, you know, anywhere between $70 million and $100 million, depending on how much we mail and which products are hot. Um, we're very, very uh, numbers-oriented in terms of we're not looking to just brag about what our revenues are. It's, you know, we're a traditional direct marketer, and every time we do a promotion, it has to pay out, and everything is measurable. So... There's nothing we do that won't pay out. If it doesn't pay out, we stop doing it, as opposed and to so general advertisers who don't play that same game. And so that's all um, offline direct mail. There's no, there's no. You're not doing telemarketing. No, no. Well, today's a different story. So that 70 to 100 million includes a lot of other things. Uh, obviously, by building this database as big as we have, we have many, many books, and we have many newsletters now. Direct mail is still probably the lion's share, but we definitely do some telemarketing very, very selectively. Um, that's not a big part of our business, um, but by selectively, I mean we basically only call existing customers and cross-sell them and upsell them to things that they'd be most interested in. Um, we do a lot on the Internet, and our Internet model is um, one where we we have – Right now, two um, e-letters that one is in the health area, one is in the general consumer area. And the e-letters, the model on the Internet for us is that the actual editorial product is free, uh, but we embed ads for our other products in those e-letters so that it becomes a vehicle for selling, but it's we deliver real editorial. So it's a content-driven e-business. And that's getting bigger and bigger every day. Um, we're much. We're, that's some URLs we could look at. What's that? What would be some URLs that we can look at? Somewhere else we can look at. Oh, what are some URLs? What are the what are the? Oh, URLs. Oh, bottomlinesecrets.com is our website. On that website, um, you can subscribe to either of the two e-letters. One is called Daily Health News, and the other is called Bottomline Secrets. Um, there are two different e-letters, um, which are free, so anybody can subscribe. And then also on that website, uh, we have a store with all of our products, and we have a, you know some information on the company and a variety of customer service things. Uh, and we're building right now an archive that will either be a paid archive or a membership archive. Um, so we're working on that. But basically, for an on, uh, uh, our online business has been much more focused on email marketing as opposed to website marketing. Mm -hmm. And so you've been building up, and how are you driving traffic to build up those lists? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, um, you know, we do try to get as many email addresses as we can um, from our, you know, from people in direct mail. We 
offer on the internet. We have various affiliate deals where we'll offer free subscriptions, um, and we, you know, we'll pay a bounty for every email address we can get uh, for a new email subscriber. Uh, we have a program where existing customers who we have email addresses for, we give them an opportunity to subscribe to the free e-letters, even though they're an offline customer. We try to convert them to online, to an online customer. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, going to, you know, the problem with outside lists in the email world is that, you know, the lists aren't very good. Um, they're not, they're not that qualified. A lot of list owners in the e-world are trying to charge a CPM in the 200 to 300 dollar per thousand range, and frankly, it, that would never pay out for us. I mean, we we can't pay that for an offline list, and at least on an offline list, we know what the sales are. With an online. We're, we're putting them on a free e-letter list, and it takes us, you know, could take us three, four months to get our money back. So without a kind of a CPA deal, cost per acquisition, as opposed to a CPM deal on the list, it's very difficult to prospect to get new email subscribers in the traditional way that we knew from direct mail. But I'm, I'm seeing a lot of progress in the, you know, the, e, the, uh, le- the, the online world as a whole, to figure out ways to do a lot more cost per acquisition that makes sense for both sides. And I'd like to see more of it, and that's kind of what we're pushing for. The people listening to this are some of the, the, the best in the internet, and they probably are, in fact, they are the best in the internet in terms of driving commercial traffic on a CPA or a CPL cost per lead basis. So um, if you're interested in, in, in having any of them contact you, just, you know, now's the time to say it. Um, you know, if, if they if they thought that there was some, I mean, I, my my problem is that we have a lot of people contacting us all the time, and many of the, you know, if it sounds like you, your group is a lot more sophisticated and they know more than a lot of the people who are knocking on my doors to date. Um, but sure, you know, we are always open to new ways to increase our email list with qualified uh, subscribers who will buy other products from us. Well, they do all kinds of stuff. I mean, as an example, your Alexa rank is 85,000. So that's, that's actually fairly good. That means in, you're in the top 86,000 sites on the internet for traffic. So, you know, there's some volume going to your site. Um, one of the guys who's involved with this, he, he drives 300,000 signups a day to his site and his Alexa rank is 120. Oh my um, God. Like 2 billion, 2 billion impressions a month. That's amazing. So there's, there's some guys driving a fair amount of money. Yeah, no, that's, that's very impressive. The diff- it's a different crowd, but it's, I mean... Yeah, no, I mean, look, everything with us is a direct marketing model. So, you know, I, driving traffic and getting names is a great first step, but, you know, I'm also interested in, you know, everything's got to pay out, so... Exactly, so <laughs> I agree completely. So let's move on now. I know that your expertise is in list management and, and so then acquiring new customers. It w- I'd just love to hear about how do you go about uh, looking for a new list? I mean, where do you start? How do you test it? How do you know it works? All that stuff. Well, the, the business has changed a lot. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, the first 10 years of my career, I would consider myself a list expert. I'm not saying I'm, 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 I become a list, I become a list dunce, you know, in, in the last 10 years. But I'm not as directly involved in the list business as I was. And frankly, the list business has changed a lot uh, in terms of, you know, quality names that are available, a lot of, you know, with postage increases and the cost of direct mail only going up, most, you know, mailers who used to have, you know, 100,000 new names a month now have, you know, 50,000 new names a month, and that changes everything because it's a volume-driven business uh, from a, you know, from a profit standpoint for the list brokers and managers. But as far as, you know, I, I, I've taught a lot of basic courses in, in direct mail, and the first thing that I teach in, in the list part of that is, you know, really trying to understand what it, re- you know, what what a what is the right list for your product. And there's a, a lot of different research that needs to get done. I mean, clearly, it's if you have the volume to back it up to be able to work with a qualified list broker who can do the research for you bring you the list that they think is right for your product, and then you analyze them based on who else has used the list, um, how many new names they're putting on um, on this list on a monthly or a quarterly basis. So you have to really analyze what they call the hotlines of the list. 
And I think you, a big thing for me has always been that, and there's a rule of thumb out there that says, you know, the looking at the promotion piece that got the name that that they got the name onto that list is probably the single biggest thing that will tell you if if it's a fit for your product. For example, if I go to an I, I have a product, uh, you know, Bottom Line Health, which is a health newsletter. If I, you would say, okay, well, what would be a great list for that? Well, the Harvard Medical School Health Letter should be a great list for Bottom Line Health. Well, I'll tell you that the, the Harvard Medical School Health Letter list doesn't work for Bottom Line Health. Why? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. One is that Bottom Line Health happens to be more integrated medicine, um, whereas the Harvard Health Letter is more just traditional. We're traditional and alternative. In addition, even more important, is that the control package or what Harvard Medical, and this is not a criticism of Harvard Medical, by the way. They have a great newsletter, and I even know the, I know the marketing people there, so maybe I shouldn't even, you know, single them out because it, it's a fine list. It just doesn't work for us. But the, I'm using it for, it's a very good example because um, their control package that they use to get new customers is a number 10 envelope. It's not very, uh, I'll call fascination-driven, and therefore it's a whole different approach, and the kind of person that would subscribe to a package like that is going to be very different than our package, which our control package for Bottom Line Health is an 8.5 by 11 Magalog, meaning that it's a self-mailer, 16-page promotion piece with a lot of color and a lot of photographs and a lot of big headlines, and a lot of hyperbole that we can back up, of course. Um, and it, it's, it's not, I'll call it a direct fit, so that the kind of promotion that we're doing, you, I mean, the, the average person would look at those two lists and say they don't work because they're not synergistic because Harvard is traditional health and bottom line health is, is integrated health. And I'd say to them that may be one of the reasons. I would maintain, though, that it's even more important that if Harvard was using a format and a, an approach to get new customers like we were, there'd probably be a better chance of that list working for us, even though it's only traditional medicine. So that's the kind of thing. I mean, that, to me, that's advanced list selection. I, I, I cut right to the chase. I, mean, I skipped over all the basics of list, of list selection and went to something that's a fairly advanced concept. No, no, no. What's interesting about that is that because um, that, that may tie over to behavioral targeting for us, one of the things that I don't see in targeting on the web right now is um, it's, it's not easy to find out, well, okay, we've got a, a profiles of users that have done a, a specific thing but, or, or have signed into a specific offer, but we don't get to see landing pages that cause them to sign in. Or subject, line, or subject lines and yeah, what landed in their inbox that got their attention. And what you're saying is that in your experience in offline direct mail, and obviously there's a fair amount of volume behind that given the, the revenue guys are, do, are doing, that, that that's, that's a, in fact extremely important predictor of what's going to happen. Are you suggesting that's more important than other predictors such as um, demographics? Um, I don't want to say more. I, I think it's dangerous to say more. I think, you know, when we look at list selection, it's a package deal. In fact, I developed a worksheet uh, way back when I was doing list selection as, you know, more of my full-time job, and we developed a worksheet that basically asked a ton of different questions. So someone recommended a list to me, and I would ask all of these questions. I'd say, what is the kind of mailing piece that got the names? Then I would find out who else has used the list. Then I would find out what the demographics are to see if that's a fit. I would take a look at, you know, what the subject matter is, if it was a newsletter, for instance, and so the editorial content. Then I would even do things like, you know, what is the, what's the price? You know, is it a, is it a $30 newsletter or is it a $100 newsletter? Big, could be a big difference. How did they sell it? Did they sell it with a bill me offer or a, or a cash with order? Much bigger difference between those two. So it's, I, I can't say that one thing is more than another, but I will say that the promotion that got the name is as important as any one single thing in, in many, many cases. I will tell you that there are lists out there that use our exact, you know, very similar promotions to us, but, you know, if it's for, you know, auto supplies, forget about it. And it could be for auto supplies, but it could also be our demographic. It could be auto supplies for people over 60, 
it's still the list probably won't work because the the subject matter is just too far away. But it's a it's a real critical factor. But I think the point that I'd like to make for your listeners and your readers is that it, it's really it, it's a, it's a it's a snapshot. You know, a list universe is not. See, there are no unique names. There are only unique lists. So what makes that list, that compilation of those names in that grouping, what are the things that make them different than people who are in the same demographic? What makes the subscribers to Money Magazine different than the subscribers to Smart Money Magazine? Now, there may not be a lot of differences in how the list performs, but there are incredible aspects. If Money Magazine, you know, is doing it has moved their editorial to you know a 30 plus that's important uh a 35 year old and 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 uh, smart money is geared to the 55 plus that's that demographic is very important but i maintain that if smart money went to uh a magalog format from a number 10 format that's going to change the behavior of the names on the list much more All right so you know i can't give you that i can't give you a quick soundbite that says you know one thing is the most important but I think the most important thing to know is that list selection has a lot of science to it. It really does. Fair enough. And so when you're conducting a test, what for you is a valid test? Well, when we test creative panels in a direct mail, um, we're doing 25,000 name panels. When we're testing a list, usually you can test in quantities. The rule of thumb is 5,000 names uh, if you want to see if a list is going to work or not. The, the rule of thumb that, that was always used by one of my mentors, who was a direct mail pioneer, Dick Benson, he used to always say you want to back into a number because if your response rates, based on what response rate you generally get, you want to get about 100 net orders to kind of have a group of people that tells you that I learned something. So, so the reason I think why I'm trying to – let me back into why – I don't know why 5,000 became – became the the number but if if you mailed 5000 names and got a 1% response that would be 50 orders on a soft offer you pro, on a bill me offer you probably can get as much as 2% response so that would give you 100 orders i think that's where a lot of the 5000 came from um, i find that because we have a bill me offer i want to also see how many net subscribers or net buyers i get out of a particular panel and to do that, I want to do five times the amount because I may only get 20% pay up, 25% pay up, depending on if it's a newsletter. On books, I get you know 60 or 70% pay up, but I want to I want to have enough net orders to be able to read the test. So to answer your question, you said how many names do you test? It's really you, you kind of back in and say how many responses do I need to make this a valid measurement. And something that I can roll out to with confidence. Yeah, no, I get that. And so what you're saying is 100 orders is the number that you aim for, and you'll back that out to how many how many would likely generate 100 orders. 100 net orders, yeah. Now, And that's on the low end. I mean, these days, you know, I will say that, you know, I wouldn't mind having 150 or 200, but, you know, sometimes it, it gets costly. And direct mail has gotten incredibly expensive. I mean, postage just went up again, you know, in a big way. So... I mean, I think the interesting thing when I think about offline versus online, um, you know, the good, the good, the good news and the bad news. I mean, the good news about online, of course, is you know how cheap it is to test. Um, the bad news about online is how cheap it is to test because, you know, the cheapness of the testing means that everybody can be in the business, which means you got a much crowded more. The, the inboxes are more crowded. The ability to get response rates that make any kind of uh, statistical significance are much harder to get. And frankly, you know, I've been over the years frustrated with our online testing, and I have much more confidence still on our offline testing in terms of creative, in terms of everything that we do, uh, even to the tune of, you know, finding out what the best package is to go then use for the online version. I'd rather test offline if I can, if, but it's expensive. But I feel like I can I can hang my hat on that data much better. Hmm. 
Well, you're an offline company. That's your in your your genes and so. It is, but you know, I will tell you that everything that we do offline, we transfer to online. So, for instance, the best direct mail packages we have, we then create online versions of those direct mail packages, um, and we don't shorten them. They're really long still. If they're 16 pages offline, they're going to be 16 pages online. And that works the best. And so it's rare that we make changes because we think online people are going to be different and that they actually beat what the offline best package was. So I go back to, you know, people's behavior, and a lot of that doesn't change. And the emotions that you need in promotion copy, there are still many, many universals, as we know. Sure. One of the guys listening to this call is doing 60 million a year online, just 100% online, no offline, um, and that's all just just internet sales. So there may be some differences that um, maybe don't translate, which our guys um, would have a tough time uh, un- unless they picked it up from someone like you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that you know I, I, you never you never want to say you know if you, if you make if we make blanket statements about online and offline. I, d- I have one situation now which is very interesting. One of my best direct mail packages for our health newsletter um, had beaten its previous the previous control by a significant margin, and and the previous control was a six by nine envelope. The current control is one of these sixteen page Magalog self mailers. And interestingly, when we tested the new, you know, the the the, the version of the six by nine that was the online, we had an online version. It was one of the few times where I took the sixteen page new control that won significantly in the offline world, put that online, and it did not be the previous control, the 6x9. Um, that's the exception, not the rule. But mm-hmm. So that's one of the few times where my online control now is actually a, a previous offline control that was beaten handily. Hmm. It happens, you know, and, it, you know, the, and that's, what, that's the beauty of direct marketing is that, and that's why direct marketing... You know, anybody who says online marketing is not direct marketing is nuts. Um, oh, sure. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just as measurable, if not more, and you get immediate gratification. You don't have to wait for the Postal Service to deliver it, assuming your emails get delivered. So yeah, you we, get we a much, of, <laughs> I think we probably have more deliverability problems than you do. but uh, You have more deliverability, but you certainly get your response rates faster, and you get yeah, your results no. faster, so you can, you can move on things, you can test things faster. But again, my confidence level, because we're an offline company to start, I don't have the same kind of confidence that probably some of your CEOs do. You can, you can. I mean, we can have we can have answers back on a test in one hour. <laughs> exactly, um, and we do too. I mean, we, our online business is is run like that, but that's right. not what we grew up with. So we have we have both sides of that. So I've actually got some quotes from um, an interview that I heard of you before on my wall, um, and I found some of the stuff you're talking around split testing fascinating. Where you talk about the control is your enemy, and don't right. get tiny. What are the what are the elements that um, when you're making a test? What what are the elements that you guys uh, aim to test first? That have the biggest. It's, that's impact? a good question. I mean, the don't make tiny tests was from Gordon Grossman, who uh, was one of our, our consultants. Because in our in our early days of direct mail, we we you know, if you read some of the classic direct mail books, they'll tell you, you know, you have a you have a sales letter, you change it from white to blue, or you change the envelope from white to blue, and you'll get a fifty you can get a fifteen percent lift. And I'm not saying that those people weren't lying, but frankly, I'm not gonna with the cost of direct mail as it is today, I'm not making that test. <laughs> you know, it anymore. You, I mean maybe I did it one time. There's a lot of people on the internet in the sort of the, the lower level internet marketing circles that still um, spend quite a bit of time testing colors. <laughs> well, you know what? On the internet, though, you're not, you know, it doesn't cost you as much. So well, I can I mean, see, the you know, serious, the big guys don't, but it's the, the little guys spend time testing stuff like that. The three things that I've found in, in my experience in working with clients uh, that have make the biggest difference is the headline, the offer, and the price. Would that um, would that be that would, your that, that, yeah I don't know and not, not necessarily in that order depending on which of our products um, you know once we find a sweet spot on price it's very hard to find a new price point for the same product getting to that sweet spot of price is is a lot there's a lot of testing that goes into that um, the offer 
we're always playing with that, adding premiums, taking premiums away, combining premiums, um, you know, adding um, premiums is a big one for us. I mean, discounts, not as much. Um, and in the premium area, you have free bonuses. You have, you know, you have gross and net premiums. There's a lot of things you can do there. Um, and then headlines, you know, we we have had some breakthrough results with certainly a lot of our self-mailers, the idea of of, um, of changing covers of a self-mailer, which is in the in the realm of changing headlines. We've seen some dramatic results there too. Um, but when you say when we say don't make tiny tests, you know, this idea of you know changing color on a particular page or changing font sizes or you know, moving a picture from the left to the right and adding a photo here or there. In the olden days when direct mail was a lot cheaper, we could afford to do stuff like that. I have to believe we didn't get a lot of breakthroughs then either. And I think the beauty of it is the cost has now prevented us from making stupid tests or tiny tests, as I call them. And so we, do, we do want to test the bigger things. Now? So what are big things? What are the, 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 the five or ten things you care about testing now? Okay, so you, well, you mentioned headlines, covers, um, outer envelopes, um, price, uh, offer, premiums, um, uh, uh, working more timely. I mean, t- timely timeliness is a tough thing to test because if you you know, when gas prices were going through the roof and you do a cover that talks about gas prices and it stays the control for a year, who knows where gas prices are going to be in a year. On the other hand, a lot of a lot of mailers, you know, like to do the timeliness stuff, So, but, and it is certainly worth testing. Um, I think figuring out ways to create more perceived value, and there's a lot of ways to do that, whether it's adding a premium that's a lot bigger taking a premium and breaking it apart into, you know, from one big book into 50 special reports, things like that. Um, uh, what are some of the other things we like to test? Um, I mean, you know, the biggest breakthroughs you normally get, too, is if you're dealing, if you're working with the best copywriters in the world or in the country, um, you, if you can trust, if once you put your hands put yourself in the hands of a great copywriter, it's sort of like not just a fresh pair of eyes looking at the current control that's your enemy. The control's your enemy. You get a world-class copywriter looking at that control, understanding why it's working, and they understand what they have to do to beat it. And I think that the biggest breakthroughs do come with um, an A-plus copywriter coming up with a completely new approach. And so the unique selling proposition and underlying things. Now you're not testing elements anymore, but you're testing a whole new concept. And frankly, our biggest breakthroughs are usually that. Another thing we'll test a lot of is... Um, Before you go, actually a really interesting point. So you'll find an A-plus copywriter. I mean, wh- where would we find one of those guys, and then how much would we pay someone like that? Well, most of, them, most of them won't work for new clients too quickly because of what they charge and what they expect to be pay. The best copywriters in the country... Um, there's a retired copywriter. I'll, I'll, I don't want to mention names on this call, but I'll mention one who's retired, um, probably one of the best copywriters of all time by the name of Gary Bensavenga. Um, mm-hmm. And Gary Bensavenga would charge anywhere from, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 up front, um, and then he would get a, royal, a mailing royalty so that a lot of those writers would get upwards of $50 per thousand or five cents per piece mailed. Um, no matter how long the piece was a control, <clears throat> and they would get a get, basically getting a royalty on every time every piece you mailed with their copy on it. Now so that's on the very I'll give you the highest end possible uh, to, uh, to scare your folks off the most. But there are writers who are up and coming who might charge less than that who are really no no, no really. but that's that's a good case. I mean I I know a lot about Gary Bensavenga. I'm on his list and I, I, I he's he's got to make some interesting points. Um, so you're suggesting, your point of view as, in, in this case, is in our terminology, you're an advertiser. So as a guy who's, who's running an offer and you want to um, hire a conversion rate, 
you're saying that the best approaches for you have come when you've um, brought in an outside advertiser, paid them thirty to fifty thousand dollars plus a, a percentage of, of revenue generated. That's been what's been the biggest breakthrough for you. Is that correct? Um, we say I, I wouldn't say advertiser. I say copywriter. You said no, advertiser. You said hire an advertiser. In in our terminology, you're an advertiser. In in on internet terminology. Okay, um, so I'm an advertiser and I'm hiring, but I'm still I'm hiring a copywriter. You're hiring a copywriter to write your advertising for you. Right. That, I'd say that overall we've had more breakthroughs there than anywhere else. Um, you know, format is a big one I didn't mention either. You know, going from a number 10 package to an oversized Magalog or tabloid or bookalog as they call them. Or, you know, there are a lot of different – we've had some huge breakthroughs with format changes. But usually the format coincides with copy changes as well. That is really interesting, <laughs> and yeah, that that is that is just really interesting, and 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 that's because <laughs> that, the, 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 some of the guys who do the most volume on the internet, they do they do some testing, but they don't even do that much split testing, let alone bringing in outside copywriters to have a look at. Oh things. gosh, then you know I, I would think that that would hold true with copywriter with uh, online as well as offline. The um, the interesting thing though is that with all the other things that I mentioned that we like to test. Maybe you get a new copywriter, and in one fell swoop, you get a 40% lift or a 30% lift. But you know what? There's, you know, I always have the expression, you know, what, what do they call, what do they call the guy who or or woman who graduates last at Harvard Medical School? Um, they call him doctor. Doctor, absolutely. So there's, you know, there's a there's a real uh, need to keep doing what we call tweaks. And it sounds like you're not you're not making any headway, but you know we get a lot of you know ten, fifteen, twenty percent lifts from premiums and headlines and all the things that it sounds like your guys are doing. And I don't want to I don't want to minimize that. That stuff's really important. But yeah, I mean I think getting a, a fresh look and a completely new selling proposition is certainly a way to get a huge breakthrough. Yeah. All right. And and I mean these these are sort of breakthroughs that have generated millions and millions of dollars. I mean these are products that are, you're driving at least ten million dollars a year in revenue through off in offline direct mail. Is that correct? Uh, not all of them, but yeah, a lot of them, sure. Hmm. I mean, not every product. Not every product is. They're all doctors, but you know, some are some are brain surgeons. Sure. <laughs> you know, um, you 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 raised some really interesting stuff in the beginning where you talked about um, books. And effectively, you're talking about back ends. Um, and so your front end, as I understand it, would be your newsletters, which people pay a monthly fee to receive. Um, would it be possible to talk a little bit about some of the back ends that are behind those newsletters? Well, I mean, the back end of the newsletters, uh, the biggest thing is, is renewals. Um, the beauty of, of any subscription business is, you know, what, if the, if the editorial is good and, you know, it's fun. One of the great expressions that my mentor Dick Benson used to say is, um, and it, it took us marketers off the hook. It's editors sell renewals, marketers don't. So, you know, I can bring them in the door, and I, you know, do all this great stuff with the great copywriters and the great promotion pieces. But ultimately, if people aren't going to stick around, you know, that's one way. There, there are a lot of businesses that don't have a renewal business, and but they usually have advertising. So, but you know, so that you just have to keep replacing the people that fall off the file. In our business, because we don't have advertising, it's critical to have. You know, we move our renewal point one or two points. It's it's a make or break sometimes, and that a lot of that is the editorial product. I can't, you know, if you're if you're a subscriber for nine months and I'm trying to renew you, and you're not happy with the publication, I don't know what I can do to get you to to re up. So. You know, that's where editorial and marketing have to work together a little bit more. Um, being in a smaller company like ours and being a newsletter as opposed to a magazine that doesn't have to worry about advertisers, um, I think that we can have a little less separation of church and state, and it makes, it makes our business not simpler but certainly more synergistic on both the editorial and the marketing side. So, you know, renewals to me is the ultimate back end for a, a – uh, a newsletter business. Now, the book business, as I said, 
the the early book business for us was newsletters greatest hits but you run out of stuff and one of the real epiphanies that i had uh through one of my consultants gordon grossman uh he had a quote to me one day and he, he called me up and he said your book business is doing great but you only have a few titles that are working really well because your best titles are the ones that are your greatest hits books. So what makes you think that every one of your books has to be your own editorial stuff? And I said, it's a good point. What do I, you know, so then I took that piece of information and I literally um, took one of my marketing people one night. We took a hand, we went to Barnes & Noble to the bookstore. We took a hand truck um, literally, we took a hand truck from the storeroom. I asked if I could borrow a hand truck. And we went to every part of the store that had a category that was a, an element of our database, meaning people on our database of interest areas. So I went to the tax area. I went to the health area. I went to the business area. I went to the consumer information area. I went to the retirement area, the obviously finance and money management area, um, and I think we bought that night, I don't know, 50 or 60 different books off the shelf. Um, soft covers, hard covers, most of them had a, quite a bit of dust on them because, as you know, most authors get paid in advance for a book and they never see a, 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 a dollar of royalty because once the book is released and it has a little fanfare, it sits on the shelf and you sell a few here and a few there. And what I did was I started looking at all of these books and started figuring out which of these books would make for a good direct mail book. What is a good direct mail book? From the boardroom perspective, it was a book that we could pull fascinations out of. So I was going to use the same philosophy that I used in our newsletter business becoming a book business to take books that already existed and, and sort of you know, go, reverse the funnel and, and decide which books might have a, a, a flair for or at least a... Uh, a, a better chance of selling in direct mail. And then I weeded those down, and then I started sending a few of those titles to some of our best copywriters and said, what do you think? Could you write one of your, you know, whiz-bang packages for one of these? And basically a whole new part of our book business was born. And we, ha we now have a whole oh, bunch nice. of titles that were former trade books that may or may not have sold well, um, and well, again, is relative. I mean, if you talk to a trade publisher and they tell you they sell 50,000 books, I think they'll tell you that was a pretty big seller. Meanwhile, if we don't sell, you know, 100,000 a year in direct mail, given our the way we do direct mail, I won't say it's a failure, but it's not a book we're probably going to stay with for very long. So we've had a lot of trade publishers who've been very, very happy with their royalties on this. So you're taking existing books. So you went to the bookstore and took existing books and then weeded those down until you had a set of books that you wanted to sell, or did you rewrite those and then they became your books? Well, what we did was we didn't rewrite them. I mean, the idea was to try to make it as turnkey as we could because, you know, and, and nothing is – we have another expression here, nothing is turnkey. But what we did was we took, like, a book that was a, that was a trade book, like a big soft cover, and we might have either taken some – it was – we might have taken some stuff out. We might have added some stuff in. We put a, you almost always put a hardcover on it, um, and then the thing that we do best is add premiums. So we create other books so that even if, let's say, the book is sitting on a say it was a hardcover book in, in the trade, so it's a hardcover health book sitting on the shelf in Barnes and Noble at twenty nine ninety five. We take the same book. Let's say it's a, a, a better yet, it's sitting on the shelf at Barnes and Noble at at nineteen ninety five. We take the same book, we add some material to it, we update it, we put Bottom Line's logo on it since it's going out a lot to our database, we put a hard cover on it, we put our a different cover, we add material through premiums that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, you you know, they, they're worth something, although they're free bonuses, and now you've got a book and a package that you could sell for $29 instead of $19 or you know, $29 instead of $24 or whatever. So mm -hmm. the problem is you do need a little bigger margin because direct mail is expensive. So we're right. finding that it's very hard to get the margins unless we can get the $29. So, but the, uh, without getting, I'm giving you way too much detail, I think, here. No, this but, is what we want. But, so you getting the price up and then you negotiate the royalties down, that gave you enough room to make it work on direct mail. 
Yeah, I didn't have to negotiate the royalties down. I just had to negotiate a fair royalty. Um, you know, the it, it's not so much the royalty that would hold us back. It would be the production cost of the book. It's the bad debt. I mean, when you do direct mail for a book and you're offering it as a free trial, you know, you have to do a lot of bad debt screening. And, you know, you're going to have 30% of the people maybe that aren't going to pay you. So that means you're sending out 100% of the books. You're only getting paid on 70. The 30% of books that you've sent out, that's a real cost. It goes right to the bottom line. So there's a lot of other things involved in the risk-reward in, in the direct mail world. But the, the key here was, the epiphany was, you know, you have the machinery to develop to do direct mail. You know the formula. It doesn't necessarily just have to be greatest hits of your own books. And you know, we're good at it. So we were able to, you know, find a lot of books that we found some great partners. And you just stayed with books. You didn't try anything else? Um, on the Internet, we're trying, like, there you can do maybe, you know, special reports, uh, which to me is just shorter books, and charge a lower price point. Um, and that's something we're trying more and more of. Because hmm. your promotion a- costs are so much less. It's fascinating what you're talking about because it's so similar to a lot of the models we, 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 people are using actively on the net, where the front end is some kind of a, an ebook and putting people into a continuity program which is built around the ebook. So there's the monthly subscription exactly like you have in the newsletter, and then to that same list, other offers or related offers are sent, which are uh, related affiliate products, which then the advertiser keeps the commission for. Yeah, so the model yeah, is I could, I see the analogy. Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Um, anything you want to add in closing? No. I, I, I mean, I got into some real detail there on, a, on, a, on only, you know, probably a fraction of what we do. But I think that, you know, I think what's interesting as we, as we were talking, and you just kind of summed it up well, that, you know, online, offline, yeah, I mean, it's very, very different, and the models are different, and the economics are different and all that. But I think... I think what we're always talking about is is direct marketing, and which means that everything is testable, everything is measurable. Um, I think that you know anybody who's working on the internet, I think it's easier to get sloppy on the internet because everything is so cheap to do. But and you know, so you won't lose a lot of money, but you're certainly going to waste a lot of time, and you're also going to clutter up people's in- inboxes. I mean, there's another theory in direct mail, and I don't know if this is true in, in online because I haven't explored it enough, but there's a theory that says every time you send something to someone, you may reduce the response to something else. And it's a concept in direct mail called contact strategy, so that mm-hmm. if in the ideal world, if I had 12 pro- – if, if you're on my customer list, you, you're a subscriber to one of my newsletters, and I've got now 12 more products I want to sell you, we know that there's probably an ideal order to, to send you those products, 1 to 12, and an mm-hmm. interval of when to send them to you. Right. Do we ever get there? Absolutely not. I mean, I don't know any direct marketer. If they tell you they know how to do that, they're full of it. They might, though, have done enough testing to start figuring out a bunch of patterns that I know the three best of the 12. I know that I better get those three offers to you in the first six months of when you're on my file because then you're going to fall off, and that's where I can maximize my income. And I'm just wondering if online, because people have gotten so, my word is sloppy, but I, I'm not, I don't mean it to, to criticize anybody, except for, the fact, except for the fact that I look in my inbox every day and I see the same crap from the same people over and over again without any regard for why they're sending me that at that particular time or in what order. And I think the direct mail cost has disciplined the direct mail people in a way that I think if the Internet folks were disciplined in the same way, there might be a little higher response rate. On the other hand, it doesn't really matter since it's so cheap anyway. And I just asked that question. Well, and here's some, here's some thoughts on it. Have you heard of the book called Drilling Down by, I think it's Jim Rohn? I have heard of that book. Um, I've not read it. 
Jim Novo. Um, uh, some great stuff there in applying. He's he worked with the Home Shopping Network and applying um, limits to things. So uh, you've had a buyer that's come in. What's the limit when they're considered no longer a buyer? That's obviously a, a big question. But w- at what point do they do they stop responding? And he puts triggers on things, and they determine then what those limits are, and then uh, 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 try to try to send their customers down a funnel. Um, we're starting to do that stuff online, and it's also um, being used for targeting as well. So a lot of do you, th- do you think do you think that he's come up with conclusions that are really actionable, or that they're just theories? Um, they seem pretty actionable in the book, but okay. I, I have experience with them. Um, it's, it's it is a very good book. I'm sure, I will definitely get it. I'm always open to this type of thing. I think that I remember one of my first years in the business. This was in the early 1980s. I was I was uh, pitching our list to a, a book. Uh, a, a mailer of, of direct mail books, and I said, you know, let's do a list exchange. I'll mail your list, you'll mail mine. And, he, and the response I got was, well, we're, we're really careful about how many exchanges we do because we've calculated, this is in, like, what, 1982, we've calculated um, what we think, think, I don't think they drilled down, what they think the average person will buy on books in a particular year. And therefore, we can't rent to this many people because once we get to that limit, they won't buy any more books from us. Now, to me, that's a theory that has no founding in anything. Right. Because if you give somebody a great offer at a great price, I don't care how much you've tried to sell them before, you can still sell them something else. But I do believe that there is optimal contact strategies that can be employed, that can maximize income in the shortest amount of time. And there are a lot of models. I mean, we do lifetime value models all the time of our customers on our database, and I can't say that they're 100% accurate, but I do know that they're actionable because we test them against each other. You know, we test new customer comes in on this offer, and then we test off the, the next offer we send them, it's A versus B, which one responded better, and at this time interval, and then we know that, you know, for that type of customer with that profile, we should be going in this order with this product right. line. So, and so on a related question, then, have you guys ever done any testing with Taguchi or Design of Experiments? No. No. Uh, fair enough. It's a, it's an area that I experimented with and uh, spent about a year or so on, and came to the conclusion that it doesn't work very well. <laughs> so there you go. So you just saved me all that money. Well, well it sounds like you're going to make me. I got to go buy a book now because of you. <laughs> yeah, the the I mean, uh, the, the the reason I ask is because uh, the Jim Novo stuff, uh, I, and I've heard his stuff works. I heard the Taguchi stuff works as well, but it it, it never it never worked reliably for me. Mm-hmm. Um, pulling down stuff looks as intriguing to me as Taguchi did, uh, but I haven't tested. It, so right, so that's that. So I'm glad I asked that question, but I will look at. I will look at it. I think that just like in database marketing, you know, there are a lot of people that claim that. They can calculate the lifetime value of a customer to the penny, and I've not seen any one model that you know I would trust my life on. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of good stuff out there, and you know it's only going to get better, as we both know. I mean, it's you know there's only going to be more data, more technology, more ability. But you know what? I go back to another side, and I go back now. I'm going back to my mentors of 20 years ago, that you know people are still people. And human behavior is still human behavior. And one of the best books that I would ever recommend was a book that was written in 1966 that we reprinted called Breakthrough Advertising by Gene Schwartz. And and that book is, you know, that's about human behavior. And that hasn't changed. Actually, and everybody, anybody listening on this call, um, you you want to pick that up. You probably, you guys probably haven't heard of this one. Um, Eugene Schwartz, Breakthrough Advertising. It is one of my all-time favorite books as well, particularly the chapters on um, the sophistication of markets. It's fascinating. And um, Boardroom are the guys that published it, and it's it's a really really good book. Yeah, the book was out of print. We saw it on eBay for nine hundred and fifty dollars. Somebody paid nine hundred fifty dollars for an out of print copy. So I went to Gene's widow. Gene was a very good. Gene was actually one of those early fascination writers, by the way. Um, and he actually, Gene was known for basically he didn't write books per se, but he did because what he would do is he would go to an author, and he would get all their material, and then he would pull from their material what he wanted to put in the book because it was the stuff he could write the best fascinations for. 
he basically wrote a book kind of backwards, starting with the direct mail and then built the book based on what he could write the best copy for, which is, to me, basically under underlines a lot of the things that I was talking about in terms of creative development. But anyway, the thing about that book is that, so we went out of print and uh, it, we saw it on eBay for $950, and we had once reprinted it in a small volume well after 1966, probably in the mid-1980s, and we printed, I don't know, a few hundred copies, and then those went out of print. And so we went. I went to Gene's widow, Barbara, and I said, you know, I'd like to get Gene's book back in circulation, and I don't think people should be paying $950 for it. And she agreed, and um, that's when we republished it, and we have a new version, which, you know, Marty Edelson wrote a forward for. Uh, we're, we're, we're charging, I think, a very reasonable price of $95 for it, and that is available on our website on the um, – if you go to the store page or the Buy It Now tab or whatever it is, uh, it has a list of all of our books, and it includes that book. It includes Gordon Grossman, who wrote a fairly new book, Confessions of a Direct Mail Guy. Um, and, and also we have Dick Benson's book in there, uh, Secrets of Successful Direct Mail. So we're kind of republishing classics as sort of a hobby. I mean, we're not making a lot of money on these books, believe me. But we felt that these books really needed to still be in print. And I'm really glad to hear that you're uh, that you've read Gene's book and that you're a fan of it. That that yeah, tells me a lot about that tells me a lot about you, Adrian. Good stuff. Well, I think I read the other ones as well, but the one that really impacted me was the Eugene Schwartz one. I just the, the when I saw the sophistication of markets and how they evolve over time, that was um, that was a, a real light bulb moment for me. So, good well, stuff. I tell you, it was uh, the book was written in 1966, and we we haven't changed the word. So very good. Well, thank you. Um, let's leave it there. And um, again, thank you for spending time with us. All right. Great. Thanks, Adrian.